This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. If we're being honest, most of us take water for granted, especially those of us who live in the developed world. We turn on the faucet, our sprinklers, our shower. We buy food that's mostly water. For most of us, there is little or no cost associated with the water we interact with daily. But that doesn't mean that it always has to necessarily be abundant. Many experts warn of big challenges in water-stressed areas around the globe. I'm Tim Hamrich, and if you're new here, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Every week, we discuss the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of the agriculture industry. If you haven't already, I definitely encourage you to go check out the recent episode we did with water economist Dr. David Zetlin. This water issue is critical to the future of agriculture, and I'm excited to bring on another guest to continue this very important conversation here today. Before I introduce him, though, I do want to give a quick shout out to Mark from Oro Bay Farm, who did leave us an iTunes review. Thank you, Mark. The title is Five Minute Farmer. It says, great show. Just found your podcast. The Five Minute Farmer is a great idea. It's good to hear from someone like myself. I'm starting a small farm to service my community and to hear about others can be very helpful. Thank you for your show. Mark, thanks for leaving a review. If you haven't yet, I would love a review from you. Just take 30 seconds, give us as many stars as you think we are worthy of, and and leave some comments there so I could read it on a future show. Now, you may have noticed that our first three guests on water, Dr. David Zetlin, Adam Borchard, and Leif Chastain, all had really strong ties to California. But California is, is not the only area or not even the only state in the U.S. that has water issues, not by a long st- long stretch. Today's guest is going to bring with him a deep knowledge of water and business with strong ties to the Midwest. We have on the show today Lee Adams. Lee is the CEO of Crop Metrics, which is a precision agriculture analytics company that helps producers optimize irrigation and production. Lee has a long history of water issues from getting his PhD in earth environmental science from Stanford, where he worked with water, to co-authoring Charting Our Water Future while working at McKinsey & Company. That report was of the 2030 Water Resources Group representing both private sector and nonprofit entities. After working in consulting at McKinsey, his career highlights include working as a senior VP and chief strategy officer for Valmont Industries, which is a global $3 billion irrigation systems manufacturer. Before taking on his current role as CEO of CropMetrics, he was a managing director of HighQuest Consulting, specializing in advisory to investors and operators in the food and ag space. And he co-founded and was the COO of Good Earth Irrigation, a startup that boosts crop yields and resiliency by investing in efficient irrigation systems. We start our conversation today with Lee explaining what attracted him to this position with CropMetrics. Well, first of all, the founder. Uh, founder's name is Nick Emanuel. He's he's a farmer himself, and I guess, a, and this goes back to kind of what you you know what made me kind of shift a little bit. Well, I didn't. I, I think ac- some academic progress is great, and you know the things I was doing there was fun and exciting. But I was really, you know, a lot of the solutions are just people that are going out and doing it. You know, finding solutions on the farm, and in, in this case of agriculture, and and Nick is certainly one of those. I had joined. His board of directors, as I had a career shift and, and moved into other things, we had we had met each other, 
So I was on the board of the company and, and got real familiar with uh, both the technology and the opportunity to, to scale. And, you know, I had some other opportunities, as you, as you indicated there. And, uh, you know, Nick and the board just kind of had a heart-to-heart with me. And, you know, we, we were all jointly excited about what that next phase of crop metrics could look like. And so, you know, there's risk-reward here. And somehow I talked my wife into <laughs> taking a little bit more more risk. But I'd had a, one experience also uh, joining as a co-founder of a, of a startup. So I, I kind of knew what it was like. And again, just really saw, saw some upside. And I, I, can't, I can't deny it. There's, there's a bit of a passion for, hey, this is just a, a huge global issue. And, and frankly, so many people had uh, contributed to my, I don't know, education on, on the topic. And I just felt a little bit, hey, maybe this is one of my angles to, to really contribute. And could you walk us through kind of the origin story of crop metrics? Yeah, even before you you kind of joined the board, how did Nick, uh, as a farmer, sort of come up with the idea and, and get things started? Yeah, yeah, I'll reference it because it's that's that's important as the trajectory here. So uh, I think you know in the late two thousands, a lot of attention on started coming down on on variable rate fertilizer and seeding and, and what what opportunities that allowed the grower to basically become more profitable. And that, that is this, I mean, you've had some guests on, Tim, that have been really great to kind of shine a light on, hey, this, we got to solve farmer profitability. I mean, some of the investors into Indigo Ag, for example, that you had on. And, and so, you know, doing this variable rate seeding and, and, and fertilizer, that's had a huge opportunity to increase farmer profitability, the yield primarily. And I think what Nick saw is, hey, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that opportunity out there, but then at least for farmers who irrigate, you have the great potential just to literally wash away a lot of that uh, upside because you irrigate just with one rate. It's almost look, turn, consider like, hey, I'm going to go turn the lights on and off. I'm going to go turn the irrigation system on and off. And you're really muting the opportunity that you have from everything else you could, you could do with technology if you don't do that in a very smart way. So that was part of the origin story, as you put it. And I think over time, you know, more and more uh, growers is highly emotional decision to either irrigate less or in ways that you think might actually hurt yield. And so w- what our technology will do uh, is, is help both reduce that risk and, and be able to unlock the profitability that you have from everything else that you're spending so much time and energy and money to put on that field. It really, it really does unlock that. So fast forward ahead, you know, five, 10 years, we're just improving on that technology. And with, with the variable rate irrigation system that, that you all are a part of, is this, is this for center pivots primarily or what type of irrigation are we talking about? You know, I think there's you know, part of the origin story is where we're, where we're coming out of. And this area here in Nebraska Nebraska, Kansas, Eastern Colorado, Central Plains is, in my view, is one of the major irrigation revolutions. Okay, there's considerably that's done in California. You've had some issues talking about, or folks on talking about California, Israel, of course, some existential issues there. But the center pivot, as you referenced, was invented here in the Central Plains and has really caused a, a revolution in how efficiently you can irrigate throughout the world. I mean, the, the market, maybe 90% of the global market share for those, that sort of equipment is, is within 250 miles of, of Omaha, for example. So we do, I mean, just by nature of our origin, I guess, have focused a lot on helping optimize those. And there's some, some nice parallels with kind of like high efficiency furnaces and how 
those aren't fully optimized today. But so I'd say that's a good chunk, but we've also got some systems in subsurface drip technology in some places where they actually do flood irrigation or gravity as they, as they call it. So we're agnostic to the equipment. It's, it's literally thinking more about the soil and the crop and the needs that we focus on. And so we see that expanding beyond just center pivots, uh, which is probably our focus for uh, today. And, and what is the special sauce? Is it, is, it the, is it the platform that allows a farmer to adjust a valve for variable rate irrigation or walk us through kind of the special sauce of crop metrics? Yeah, so the, the special sauce is just to, to reconfirm it. We're an analytics, a, a software company. We did have the first software system to go out and do variable rate irrigation. So to irrigate each part of the field at a slightly different rate. There's a lot of hardware that's needed meaning a controller on that center pivot. You could get down to having individual controls on nozzles on, on a center pivot as well. But we're the, we're the software piece behind that. We have pulled data. We talk about having a very simple system using sensors, if needed, field-based data, using cutting-edge cutting science, um, focusing on the agronomic science, and frankly today, and this is a bit of the shift of the company, heavily using data science. Then the third pillar is support, field-based support or an agronomist that's in the mix. We work through that channel, and in some ways, we so there's so, so there's a lot of secret sauce around data and, and uh, doing doing things with that that helps deliver an optimal solution. But working closely with that support element, which is the trusted advisor to the growers, I think is something we've really figured out how to do. These independent dealers we have, some, some large ag retailers as well, depend on us. And we depend on them because that gives the solution to the grower that gives them confidence. That's, we have a new tagline that we've kind of just formalized. It's irrigate confidently, profitably, and sustainably. But we lead with that confidence piece because it is that trusted advisor that we think makes a, makes a big difference. So if I'm kind of tracking here in general, you know, you've got the situation where you know, in in the past, if we go back far enough, I guess, they, they basically had one on-off switch for their irrigation, a lot of these farmers. And then they realized, okay, well, we could do this variable rate thing. So we have multiple on-off switches, but that really makes, it, it gives them a lot more options, but it also can complicate the equation quite a bit to where, you know, especially if they're going off of gut feel, they might err on the side of caution by, you know, just turning on as much water as, as they think. For sure, I didn't need any any more water than this. And what crop metrics allows them to do is kind of rely on data to, to make some of those decisions rather than just kind of traditional gut feel. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, Tim. I'd say I'd say data and then the support of yeah, of an agronomist in the mm-hmm. in the mix. That's what really helps give the confidence. Uh, you know, I talked to some growers in, out of Kansas that are tapping into a fairly risky and declining part of the Ogallala Aquifer. And I remember ta- talking to one. In fact, he gave a little bit of a testimonial at one of these big aquifer summits. A good friend of ours, Dwayne um, Dwayne Roth, and he he recounted a little bit of his story. He's I mean, these farmers again, they're not. Technology adverse. He hosts, you know, big technology field days at his at some of his farms and whatnot. But you know, kind of followed the path that I was uh, referencing earlier, where you know, I kind of know how to irrigate, put it down lower on my priority list. I see what everyone's doing, and then he recounted, kind of giving it a go. And to be honest, in this case, it took him a little bit of a a subsidy or an incentive uh, from a local water conservancy district to kind of kick him into gear. 
started working with with us. And then as he gets to July, <laughs> July is always the, you know, the when the rubber hits the road and it's hot, you know, like I mentioned, leaves are curling. Well, and this happens, you know, three nights in a row where he sees the graphs and you can literally see where the soil moisture bank is and that you're good. You're actually okay because what's happening at the surface, you know, it start, the, the soil is drying out a little bit. It's what's happening at 12 to 18 to 24 inches under the ground that you don't see. Mm-hmm. And that's what's affecting what water your crop is, is needing right then at the moment. And so the analytics are telling him it's okay. And he would recount this. He said to the group, you know, I could see I was okay, but you know, still my heart's racing and I'm looking out and this is, I mean, this is a powerful emotion, Tim, you know, mm-hmm. when you look out and you see red lights flashing, you know, like you see in a wind, you know, a, a group of wind towers or something like that. But those, those red lights are, are people irrigating and that's not you. Right? So what am I doing wrong? And, he, uh, and so it's a, you know, he'd use words like, Hey, my fingers on the trigger almost, you know, and I want to, want to irrigate. So what does he do? He says like three nights in a row, I had to call my guy to talk me off the ledge. And I mean, the ledge is like turning on the system and spending a lot more money right, mm-hmm. on irrigating. But the, the point is that, you know, connecting with someone who is also looking at the same data, who knows your crops, your field, your hybrids you're using, what they're capable of, can say, easy, easy, easy. You're, you're fine here. Let's look at it again. Okay. Now let's remember, there's going to be some leaf curling with the heat with this, this particular hybrid, this particular crop. Don't panic. <laughs> so he doesn't panic. And then, the, you know, when, when, when you see the light, it's at the end of the year. Hmm. And your yield is actually up from what it should be up from what his cousin was across the road. And even though they've got same practices, except for irrigation and you've saved multiple irrigations at a thousand dollars a piece. So, you know, when that turns out to be 30 to $50 or more per acre, that makes the difference, but it's, it's an emotional one. And that's just one example of many. You could give a kind of on the emotional aspect. Yeah, I'm so glad you said all that because that, that that just makes so much sense to me. The peace of mind and the relief from from the stress and the anxiety and the sleepless nights and the mental load of wondering like, okay, well, I think this is right, but you know, my neighbors are watering, and what if I'm not watering enough? And what if I just you know end up really doing harm to my crop? But being able to say this is what I think and being able to back it up with real data. I could see where that would make just a massive difference in not only the bottom line, but also the, the, the mental health of, of the, the operator himself. It, it is. And we, you know, we like to say we're the second revolution coming out of the central plains on irrigation. The first one was a mechanical and the second one is a management revolution. Hmm. Well, if you want to take the kind of the, the military or the revolution one step further, it's a hearts and minds revolution. It, it, and, and we have to, get in the mind of, of the grower and, and help make those decisions a lot easier, I think. Where are, the, where are the data points coming from that, that crop metrics sort of brings in, you know, to inform these decisions? Right. So, uh, you know, hist- historically, first, it, wherever we can get them. So that's the great thing about what's going on with, you know, both the future of ag and also the current, you know, technology that's out there is we're getting data from so many different platforms. Now, you know, every farmer is not going to look at every pixel. It's, it's up to us technology providers to kind of synthesize all that. But we've always taken it starting from, well, the weather, one thing, but also using subsurface moist, soil moisture data. So there's a lot of great 
sensor companies out there, they're getting better, they're getting cheaper, easier to install and that sort of thing. So we've used subsurface soil, soil moisture data. So going back to 2009, 2010, we've got soil moisture data for a number of over a half a million acres now, Tim. And, you know, we can use that sort of data and we can use your data in your field from a soil subsurface soil moisture sensor. But that doesn't limit us either. So we'll, we'll look to, you know, we can do a lot with modeling on our own or in partnership with others. Imagery is getting better and better. It's a little bit of a lagging indicator, but we can incorporate that. So I guess the answer is from all sources, although the one that people have neglected in the past is that subsur- what's going on in the subsurface, which you can't see. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of glossed over the, the, the aspect you said earlier, we were talking about the profitability of a system like this and the, and the saving money on other inputs. I think that's yeah. a, it's a really interesting point in, in one that's maybe often overlooked. You just kind of think water and pumping water, and you don't realize its impact on these other inputs. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I, I, I can. And, you know, this isn't new to a lot of people that are really focused in the water space. And, you know, you know you've, got, you've got whole philanthropic organizations i'm thinking of like the, i don't know like the cargill organization the nature conservancy which are focused on the mississippi river and everything that's coming down off the missouri river from you know from irrigated agriculture and, uh, and otherwise and so it is a huge problem everybody knows that you mobile you mobilize more of that you pay for it downstream and i think we need to get on farm and figure out how to how to manage that a lot better and so that's what we we want to do is oh and let me give you another example. Let's not just focus on the Midwest, let's go to the Pacific Northwest. And I spent a you know some time up there early in the year, and many growers they they just want to be able to demonstrate because they are sustainably mined. They want to be able to demonstrate that hey, I'm not leaching excessive nutrients out of the soil profile, which gets to the Yakima River and that sort of thing. So I do think that's it's certainly a concern from both a profitability perspective. You don't you don't lose that, as well as a, a sustain a long term sustainability. So it's a win win if you can attack that and make it make it beneficial for both the grower and and others in the value chain. Sure, just utilizing more of those inputs on the farm rather than seeing them leach out because you had to water the whole field the same way or or you chose to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me and I'll just give you one example. Someone in a, in our organization has you know they were about ready to go and put another side dress of nitrogen on because they thought, oh, you know, just based on everything that's moving around this season, that that might be necessary. And then you could see from, you know, our analytics through a crop metric system where where that moisture resided. And in fact, that those roots were going to hit that horizon where he knew that all the nitrogen was was sitting from his earlier application. Hmm. So he holds off on that. And certainly that's what happens. Roots kind of grow a little bit, uh, two inches more. You hit that nitrogen, everything greens up, you saved another whole application. So that hits the economics. And we've got a lot of tacit exam- or, uh, you know, examples of that that are just an- a little bit more than anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But we're going to pursue that in a much more uh, quantitative way. We've, um, what about just in terms of, of water availability? You, you work with a lot of farmers that, that are over aquifers, like we mentioned, the Ogallala. Do you worry about their long-term viability? I mean, some of the reports you hear about depletion of groundwater and depletion of aquifers is a bit alarming. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely, we worry about it. I think we, you know, as crop metrics, we kind of have this mantra, you've got to have a passion for, A, for making farmers money, and, and B, this this whole topic of water and conservation, you really do. 
and you're in some of these communities and you can tell if that goes away, there goes the economy. And so it's, it's existential for many places. So we want to be actively, you know, again, agriculture being part of the solution rather than part of the problem and in extracting less, you know, there are hydrological connections that you got to get into. And that's why we have a lot of scientists working on this, but ultimately you need to make that water go a lot farther. And so, yes, yeah, we want to help be, you know, solve all those solutions from, from the, the central plains, the Ogallala, Pacific Northwest, you know, Georgia, uh, and certainly places in other countries. We start looking at Brazil and there's massive expansions planned there and, you know, a little bit willy-nilly on the irrigation side. And we'd, we'd rather help them avoid those problems from the beginning. Today's episode is made possible through the support of AgriPulse. Farming used to be only about doing chores and planting a crop, but not anymore. Today, government regulations and ag policy has just as much impact on the business of agriculture as Mother Nature, and sometimes is less predictable. Congress, USDA, EPA, FDA, and other government agencies are impacting agriculture, and AgriPulse can help keep you up to date on the rules and regulations before they become law. For 15 years, AgriPulse has been reporting on ag issues and policies in Washington, D.C., Sacramento, California, and across the U.S., and is the leading resource for ag and food policy information. You can test drive AgriPulse at no obligation. Simply visit AgriPulse.com and click on the free trial button. Your one-month trial is absolutely free, and you will start getting the information you need to better manage your farm or ag organization. So visit agripulse.com, that's A-G-R-I-P-U-L-S-E.com, and start your free trial today. Thank you so much to Agripulse for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. When a food company is is saying, all right, we want to know that our our supply is more sustainably grown, often it seems like they want to talk about fertilizer, herbicide, pesticide, soil health. The, yeah. the, the, obviously, water crosses all of those things, but do they address water specifically? I, I think they do. You know, I'm just referencing kind of the McKinsey era of my life. We did a, a real interesting project with that was you know, co-sponsored by the likes of Coca-Cola and Nestle and also ad companies like Syngenta and, uh, and some others. But we heard a lot, a lot, I mean, all the way up to the board level and the chairman level and some of these food companies that said, listen, this is, and you see this with General Mills, you've seen this with Anheuser-Busch, you know, SABM, you know, pick your, pick your food and beverage company. And they are, they are concerned about the water issue, you know, because it's a, it's an existential one for them, for the supply chain. And you see that with Nestle. It's uh, you know, got a lot in commodity crops here going into various, uh, various products. Dairies specifically. In fact, there's a, a few dairy-oriented companies that are working directly with uh, some, of our, some of our partners out there in the field, or locally around their dairies. So they, they do care about this, I think, a good deal. The, the challenge has been, and this is one where we want to help on, the challenge has been like, how do they get scale? I mean, they work from, sometimes they'll work with their sustainability group and go out and try to find a few thousand acres that they can kind of show in a sustainability report. Bigger questions like, yeah, how do you go out and do that for, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres and really start to maybe even co-invest. Hmm. And so that's something that we're actually going to start to experiment with and, and reach out to a lot of these companies. It's not typical for companies like ours that are focused on the farmer to do, but I think that's part of our delivering value 
downstream as well as some of the upstream things that we were talking about with other inputs inside. Well, what about the output? So, and I, I think you'll see, you are seeing some of these food companies start acting on the, on the soil health side. And, you know, I know for a fact that some of them are thinking, well, how do we co-invest? And, you know, I remember when I was an executive at a large equipment provider, you know, we got a call from one of these downstream guys that beyond the food company, like the retailers. And they said, like, you know, how can we partner and maybe helping some of our uh, suppliers, meaning food companies, do better at this? You know, like, we're frustrated. It's not moving fast enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, can we co-invest in your technology? And absolutely, <laughs> that's the question. So I think they're kind of playing around with that. But I think, yeah, that's something we want to pursue and help unlock a little bit. Yeah. We recently had on the show Adam Borchard in California talking about their recent legislation. And if I, if I understand correctly, yeah. it may be the first time we've had like a statewide regulation of, of kind of groundwater rights. And, and I know the, there is an adage that, you know, as California goes for, for better or worse, so, so, goes, uh, so goes the rest of the country. And, and I'm wondering if we should be watching that and, and how that impacts you know, your technology, because I would think it would get growers a lot more interested just from, a, just from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, I think that's a great signal, too, that there's a little bit, and not because we want more reg- regulations for farmers, but just we want them to you know, be able to have a sustainable pathway and a resource to depend on. And my, one of my PhD advisors was an expert in water law and just seeing what the steps that they've taken there, I think is, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for especially that specialty market. But I want to draw a line though of distinction just between being successful in commodity crops and the different sort of regulations and, and you might have to have out you know, in this part of the world, in the Central Plains or the Pacific Northwest or Georgia. There's got to be just a little bit more nuance to it. I think, you know, Nebraska has been a good example. We have one of our advisor, advisory board members that's worked a lot with some of the resource conservation districts, and they have, you know, some more, a little bit more nuanced policies, perhaps. So, you know, I don't know. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But I do think commodity, and that's where we, we focus on commodity crops, some kind of medium-value crops, because that's where, that's the hard stuff. That's hmm. You know, where you, it's not economical to measure every single piece of an aquifer. So you gotta, you gotta look at incentives at a little higher level. So I'm not an expert on incentives, of course, but I think, yeah. So to go back to the question, I think it's really exciting what's going on there. And now is, how do you translate that for regulations that give the right signal, preferably incentives to work in commodity agriculture, where the margins are thinner, let's be honest. And Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to kill farmers while we're helping them. Where do you most often see the light bulb come on for a farmer customer of crop metrics? I, I imagine some, you know, as with any investment for, for anybody, farmer or otherwise, there's going to be some apprehension of, okay, well, am I really going to get sort of the return on this that I need? What happens often that you see the kind of light bulb turn on? Well, uh, great question. I think for an individual grower, so a couple different kinds of, you know, light bulbs going on. So let's take an individual grower. It, it's, it's, it's at the end of the season when you're like, you've got that adding machine or you're adding up all those, the impacts and lo and behold, you got better yields and spent less money doing it. That's great. And the light bulb goes on. And and frankly, when we get a grower first season, we'll keep them 90% of the time, 90% plus. And the only turnover you have is like when, you know, farmers go out of business for other reasons or whatever. So that's when the light bulb goes on there. You know, it's interesting to see large, we've got some large integrated customers too that 
you know, they grow livestock and, and all the grain to feed them. You know, they look a, a little bit more on the sustainability side that they can go and advertise to a, to a McDonald's or a beef company that, Hey, look, look, here's what we're doing. We're, we're actually conserving a lot and it's both good for our economics and, you know, and good for the, and good for the region, you know, yeah. that's the light bulb goes on for them when they can make those sort of statements too. The next step then is when folks are going into, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on with hemp you're trying to highlight there. And when they realize they can do that for half, half the water, right? That makes a huge impact on the infrastructure they have to invest in, how they can justify an investment in land based on, you know, how much the water availability is there. So we've had some growers say they can go out and buy land cheaper because they know they can do more with the water than, than what others think is there. So. Yeah, so I think that's the exciting one is where you see how can we expand and, and optimize agriculture by knowing that we don't have to use as much from the outset. Huh. Do you see with, with something like hemp or, you know, if maybe they're going to consider doing something organic or anything new, does that open the door a little bit more for them to consider technology like this? Meaning, you know, if I, if my, if my farm has been in my family for five generations, we've always grown corn. Uh, yep. We feel like we've got that down. Like we, we, you know, let, yep. let's theoretically here, we kind of feel like we know what we're doing, but then as soon as we try something new, like, Ooh, uh, I might want to see what other tools are out there to help me with this. Cause I'm new to this. Do you, do you see that? Farmers changing crops, basically, and trying yeah. to figure out yeah, I crops think so. or markets or, you know, kind of opening the door. If they're trying something new, they're more willing to consider buying, you know, a, a new technology. I think so. I think when they when you make a big decision like that, yeah, they've got to have all the the information they need. And so that's something that, yeah, you have to irrigate those very differently. And, yeah, I better figure out so that, yeah, they'll they'll ask us. They'll ask some of our advisors. Uh, we have you know, people actively moving stuff around from like corn to cotton or vice versa in places where one or the other is challenged for market reasons or for technology reasons. So, so, so yeah, I think they do have to understand what the nuances are, but I'd even say going from hybrid to hybrid. I mean, sometimes they'll use a, a hybrid that's just got different characteristics to it. So they, they can, they can water that more efficiently than others and they need to understand that as well. So yeah, I think they, they, they want information wherever they can get it. Do most of your customers use variable rate technology or, or do you have plenty of customers that don't, that just use more, I guess you can call it traditional they, irrigation. Yeah, I call it traditional. We want to meet the market where it's at. And, and that, again, the market is each individual field and grower. Mm -hmm. You can get enormous amount of saving just getting the timing right like not even messing around with that spatial stuff that we've been doing for 10 years. It's, it's not as penetrated as we like. We see that shifting significantly with some of the, the trials we've been doing the last couple of years. You can start to demonstrate that spatial aspect. That's like the next step on the curve for us. So we, we see this value realization staircase almost where we want to get them on the first step then we'll graduate them. They'll start doing more of that variable rate. And then, you know, we can do stuff with automation now, which is pretty exciting. We haven't talked about that. We're, we're actively this year, uh, we've got some patents to protect it as well. We're actively going out and we are automating some pivots and their growers not touching that at all. Uh, we're running it and continually updating that prescription on what happens, you know, day by day, even hour by hour, frankly. So that's kind of then you get into the next level, the third level when growers are ready for that. 
Very cool. Well, Lee, we've we've crossed a lot of territory here, and I don't want to take up more of your time than I asked for, although we could go further into this automation thing. Yeah. I think it would be really, really interesting as well. But maybe just kind of give us the outlook. You're working with irrigated farmers primarily, but you know, what what big questions are they wrestling with that, you know, by default, crop metrics is also trying to wrestle with with them? Yeah, let's be honest. It's a tough time for commodity farmers out there. You know, we've got you've got things going on with trade, and you've had some stuff with weather. We're re- realizing there's stuff going on with climate. Whatever the reasons are, those margins are tight, and so they are absolutely wrestling with profitability. And you've had a lot of good guests on that, trying to tackle that from a holistic point of view. We are trying to be in the middle of that, right? uh, front and center. We want to we want to make that those profitability levers very very clear for a grower. You know, irrigate competently, profitably, and sustainably. So that's where we're locked in. You know, the automation stuff helps. We're going to do some really interesting things with contracts. And because we've got such great confidence in what we can, ourselves and our technology, what we can do and talking about delivering results, uh, having farmers pay for results, we feel we can do that in the future. So see a lot more of that coming up here in 2020. And I think what the other driver is, we see the actual technology for gathering data to go to start declining. So what does that do for us? It helps us offer a product like this year. We came out with a product that does not need a sensor. And it's pretty good. You get a lot of bang for the buck on that. So technologies like that where we can, you know, get to full farm with a grower. And all their acres are under some sort of a optimization service from crop metrics. That's what we're aiming for. As they have more trust in us, they'll let us fully automate those. And, and then that's an extra profitability lever for that. But that's overall, I think if you want to kind of, lay over what our goals are to a farmers, they line up hundred percent on that, on that profitability lens. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we can't do it alone. And so we want to, you know, partner with others for sure. And that goes upstream guys. You know, we're working with some retailers pretty effectively right now. We work with a lot of equipment dealers effectively. Some of the, some of the manufacturers as well. But as I referenced, let's make this a full value chain thing and work much more on the sustainability side with some of the, the downstream folks. Yeah. The food and the bed brothers. Cause they're, I think, yeah, <laughs> just pause there. But one thing would you reference before in regulation, boy, as soon as those food and beverage companies start moving actively, they can move it faster than regulation even. I think. Hmm. Yeah. The response to demand is a lot quicker than response to regulation. There you go. Yep. Yeah. We, we see that too. We see our growers respond to that today. Lee, this has been great. I, I really, really yeah. appreciate you being on the show. If somebody's listening and wants to check out crop metrics, either they're a producer or maybe they want to be a dealer or just curious about water issues and agriculture in general, should we send them to the website or where's the best place? Yeah, website, cropmetrics.com. And you know that's a good portal from anyone from a sustainability partner to, to a channel partner or, or to a grower, which is what we want to serve at the, at, the, at the end of the day. We also have an active Twitter feed and we got many thousands of farmers. So follow us there on at crop metrics on Twitter. Great. Lee, thanks again for being on the show. Appreciate it. All right. Super. Thanks a lot, Tim. 
Thank you once again to Lee Adams for being on the show. Boy, he's got such an interesting background. I I think we could probably do another episode in the future talking about some of the other things that he's done as well, because I think it's just really fascinating. And I I am still on this water kick, you guys. I, I think there's a lot more to dive into related to water issues. And so if you have a big question about water or, or really any question about the future of agriculture, would you just send me an email or tweet me? I'm at Tim Hamrich or Tim at aggrad.com. Just what big questions are on your mind about water or about the future of agriculture? For the past year or so, I've really done sort of a, a content-driven model, meaning I find out the question I want to answer and then find the right guest for it rather than having a guest-driven or guest-centered model. It's working out pretty well, I think, from just the value that that I think we're bringing in this podcast. So if you have a burning question or content that, that you just have a lot of questions about, let's say it's, you know, we're going to do some on synthetic biology this fall about like, what the heck is it and how is it going to affect the future of agriculture? If there's something like that for you, I'd love to hear from you. Just send me an email or, or send me a tweet. Hey, as always, I can't thank you enough for your time, your attention, your interest in making the world a better place through agriculture. And I, I think there's no better industry to be a part of. I hope that comes through in the podcast we do every week and really, really glad you're here. We'll be back next week with another fascinating Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.